0: We start strong in this week of technology earnings. You do that with a laureate from New York University. Berkeley, Stanford, Rochester, and I think from Chicago as well. Paul Romer joins us now. We are thrilled to have him with us today on technology and what it has done to us. Professor, I want to go back to 1989 when you stopped the economics profession with human capital and growth. And then you went on to the technology inside our system, the endogenous technological change. How do you look at these four, five, six ginormous companies and what they have endogenously done
1: to us? Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting story. Uh, uh, the technology, the technological uh, progress has been enormous. Uh, better chips, better software, better devices. Um, the, the effect on society has been a- a- ambiguous, We've had many good things, but also some some bad things. I think that the bad things all trace back to this pivotal decision by Google followed by Facebook to switch to the advertising uh, model, the targeted advertising model. This has had all kinds of repercussions that we're now living with, like uh, uh, another wave of the pan- pandemic driven by vaccine hesitation that's that's uh, been fostered uh, via social media. So. We've combined enormous technological progress with a really bad uh, business model and we're paying the price. Should we break up these companies and to be narrow
0: about it, if you can take Amazon with cardboard boxes, the cloud and a burgeoning advertising business, as you mentioned, is it Standard Oil
1: of New Jersey? Well, I, you know, I think first, I, I worked on the government side of the Microsoft case. I actually helped you know, design the proposed apps ops breakup of, of Microsoft, which the judiciary just rejected at the appeals court level. Um, I think it's extremely unlikely that a judiciary that's even more conservative now is going to uh, approve a breakup of any of these firms. I think we just have to be realistic about that. So what I think we need to do instead of focusing just on breakups or at least government forced breakups is to change the incentives to get them to shift away from this targeted advertising surveillance spying kind of model and to go back to the old fashioned model where people pay to, to, to get things so we could use things like the tax code, as I've suggested to create incentives for firms to stop relying so much on advertising and to rely much more heavily on subscriptions the way Netflix does.
2: Paul, is this tech dominance related to the stickiness of the high unemployment rate, of the stickiness of the low participation rate that we're currently seeing in the U.S. labor market?
1: Yeah, Um, I I don't think so. Um, You know, reasonable people can differ, but I, I don't think this is the problem. I think fundamentally we've been in for 20 years now in a mode where the Congress wasn't able to do anything. So all of the work uh, fell on recovery fell to the to the Fed. We use very low interest rates as a way to try and recover, but that meant that we ended up not recovering fast enough and uh, far enough so that we've steadily ratcheted down the key metric I think we should be watching, which is the employment rate for 25 to 54 year olds. So what we need to do now and what we seem to be headed towards now is uh, something more like what we saw under Reagan, which is a very aggressive, uh, loose uh, fiscal policy, stimulative fiscal policy, and as needed tight monetary policy to keep in- inflation in check. So I think that um, we, we just have to recognize that it takes a long time. It's a slow process to get people back into jobs We just got to keep pushing on this recovery long enough to get back to where we should be, which is with a lot more people who are employed.
2: Paul, I want to stay on this point for a minute because there's been a lot of question around how much the enhanced unemployment rates, uh, enhanced unemployment benefits, I should say, actually contributed to the stickiness of the participation rate remaining so low. There have been a number of studies that have challenged that. Other people saying that, look, the economy has not gotten back on. You still have people who childcare is still an issue. So what is the main why behind the stickiness right now at this point in the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, if you look back at, let's uh, the, say the recovery from the recession in the early 2000s, getting people back into jobs is a slow process. It's very easy to, to kick people out of jobs. That happens very fast. And then remaking these matches between employers and employees just takes time. And, and so we have to... Uh, be realistic in our expectations about how long that takes and maintain the conditions to keep getting people back into those jobs uh, for as for as long as it will take and it will take you know I think many months uh, to recover to the level we we need to be at we just have to be sure we don't give up too soon.
0: Paul the there's just all sorts of ways to go here and the limited time we have left. I want you to talk about what everybody in this pandemic's gone through. And Greg Gilman at at Yale University talks about it, the interiority of technology, how we're all sitting in our bedrooms or hunched over our computer, doing computer stuff and not being social. Is that the ultimate risk to the United States? Are we going to be as lonely as Tom
1: Keene, John Farrow and Lisa Bramowitz? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, somebody told me that the new the new acronym is uh is fogo, you know, instead of FOMO, fear of missing out, now it's fear of going out. So I think we're all suffering a little bit from this experience. But but I think there's a a kind of a realization which is coming, which is that these tech companies have enormous have benefited enormously from our greater reliance on them, and these tech companies are causing The problems we're seeing with uh, vaccine hesitancy. So I I think there's a backlash brewing against these firms. I don't think it's going to show up through a breakup via antitrust. I do think we're going to see legislation that that reigns them in.
0: I I mean, I think, folks, again, this is the book The End of the Myth by Greg Grandin, which uh, is just a fabulous effort. Can't say enough about the history of this. Professor Romer, is where we are right now. Like maybe we were with the railroads in 1930. I'll let you choose a technology. But the, yeah. this, this this bouncing off of technology that we're all doing on a week of technology earnings, is that where we are right now as we've been before?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm not sure that there is a good historical um, analog for what yeah, we're, what we're dealing with right now. Yeah. Um, there's a very good story out in the New York Times this morning about um, disinformation for hire these platforms have created weaponry, which is now available for purchase for anybody who wants to go out and create disinformation. Um, you know, there are some echoes of the the period of yellow journalism here, but but the uh, the scale of this and the speed uh, that with which uh, these new platforms of, of propaganda and disinformation can operate is something we we've just never uh, never encountered before, and it, it I think it's very frightening.
2: Paul, just to wrap this all together, I'm curious about whether we could see some sort of China-like moves in the United States when it comes to regulatory crackdowns on big tech, on control of data. And this is actually something that surprised markets with respect to how ferocious some of these moves and dramatic these moves have been over in China. Is that a purely idiosyncratic move or does this set the stage for the U.S. to take similar, albeit perhaps less dramatic moves?
1: Yeah, no, I I think there's a very close parallel. Everybody thinks about how different we are from China, but in many ways, our circumstances are very similar. We're on the verge of having platforms and companies that are so powerful and so influential in the political process that they're ungovernable, that they're beyond the rule of law, uh, that the state can't actually get them to comply with the law. China has realized that this poses an existential threat to governance and law, and they've decided they have to stop it. We haven't gotten there yet in the United States, and I hope we get there soon because the more influential these platforms of propaganda become, the harder it will be for us to reach a political consensus that we have to do something.
3: Professor, fantastic to get your views on this program. Paul Romer there of NYU, the Nobel Laureate and former World Bank Chief Economist. Let's get to Laurie Cavasino, RBC Capital Markets Head of U.S. Equity Strategy. And Laurie, let's start right there. What are we learning so far from the incoming earnings?
4: So look, I think this is going to be the pivotal week, right? It's crazy busy. We've got well over a third of the S&P and some of these, including some of these big tech behemoths. You know, I think what we're learning so far is that the value side of the market, the financials in particular, look like they're the weak link at this point in time. So far, we've actually seen some resilience in areas like technology and growth revisions generally, while we've really just continued to see continued slippage on the financial side. So I really want to see this week if we're going to get. Confer- confirmation of that trend if you're gonna maintain that tech resiliency. Um, Look, I think in terms of other things that we are learning, you know, one of the fascinating stats over the past week that I saw was that 2021 bottom-up S&P EPS moved up a couple bucks, but 2022 stayed flat. And so the growth rate for next year came down a little bit. Um, I wanna see if we're really gonna continue to see that enthusiasm build on next year if not, I think we interpret it as sort of a, a continued slippage in earnings sentiment. And we're seeing other things that suggest that that's happening as well, despite some of these really strong beats that we're getting.
3: Do you think downgrade risk is starting to build here, Laurie, looking ahead to next year? I,
4: I, think, I think so. I mean, I think the, you know, I think the issue, right, it's, it's a question of the rate of change versus the dollar level. And that rate of change we have very clearly seen for 2022 starting to slip just a teeny tiny Tiny bit Now, the tech companies could cause that to reverse. But what we basically got now is peak upward revision. So if you looked back in June, the rate of upward revisions in the S&P 500 was 78%. And so far in July, that has slipped to 74%. So what you have first is a deceleration of upward revisions. You just get fewer and fewer of them. And then it eventually translates into downward revisions. And those downward revisions may take a little bit of time to come. But it does look to me that we're already in that decelerating upward revision pace, and about half the sectors are contributing to that right now. Well,
0: Laurie, a two-part question with a one-part answer, and it's the idea that can stocks rise amid slow growth, rates come in, real yields come crashing down, and yet we're supposed to believe that equities rise. And I combine that with a wonderful Jeffrey DeGraff over at Renaissance who says, look, you can't have momentum unless you have breadth. Which is it right now, momentum or we need rebuilding breadth?
4: So look, I would say the composition of the market is very, very different than it's been in the past. And it depends on what causes that choppiness. Right now, we've got a market that's concerned about slower growth, not an outright recession. And so that's feeding these secular growth trades, it's feeding the tech trade. And the overwhelming market cap bias right now is towards that growth and tech sector, the TIMT space out the cyclicals, and that's not normally the case in the S&P 500. If you were to see an outright growth scare where really something more nefarious has begun to be anticipated and the market wants to flip out of secular growth and into defensive, that will drag the market down. But while we're in sort of this purgatory of slowing growth that's not that bad,
2: you could actually see the market continue to creep up just because of the composition of the market cap right now. So let's talk about the composition and the idea that growth, you're seeing more earnings revisions upwards, that they are stronger in the growth stocks than you're seeing even in value, despite the fact that you're seeing this potential rotation. What does this mean to you?
4: So, you know, one thing I've noticed on the value side, and we make, the, you know, we make the case that sort of the cyclicals are dragging down the revision ratios. It's actually only part of the cyclicals. It's the financials. The energy companies have still been decently strong. The materials companies have still been decently strong. Um, you know, for us to really say there's a, a massive problem on that cyclical trade, we'd probably need to see the energy and material sectors start to falter a bit, and the industrials as well. We're not seeing that yet, but it's clearly something we've got to keep an eye on.
3: Laurie, great to catch up with you on a massive week ahead. Good to see you again. Laurie Cavasino, RBC Capital Markets, head of U.S. Equity Strategy. Laurie mentioning the composition of this market, heavily weighted towards big tech.
0: For the United States, Lloyd Minor joins us now to he's with so Stanford University and their School of Medicine Dean. Barely describes his original research in medicine and also his academics. We're thrilled that Dr. Miner could join us today. Dr. Miner, a federal judge, stood up last week and said Indiana University can force people in some way to get vaccinated. I know at Stanford you have a sterling record. I believe it's 257 uh, illnesses, which is remarkable given the size of Palo Alto. But what is your policy? Are you heading towards where Indiana is?
5: Well, good morning, Tom. It's good to be with you. We do have a policy requiring vaccination for all healthcare workers and also for students uh, at Stanford. There are provisions for people to apply for exemptions uh, based upon medical or religious reasons. Uh, but we strongly encourage people to be vaccinated. And we're seeing a very high number right. of people in our system who are vaccinated. That's right
0: where I wanted to go. If you have that policy from someone of your repute, or frankly, Indiana University as well, do you see action on the part of the unvaccinated?
5: Yes, we do. Roughly 85% of people in our healthcare delivery system today are vaccinated. Uh, That minimum number may be larger. We're still collecting the data. And that it continues to increase every day. I think back vaccine hesitancy is coming down. We're seeing just how effective these vaccines are. And of course, with the emergence of the Delta variant, vaccination is even more important.
2: Dr. Miner, our, our colleague John Farrow pointed to a headline this morning out of Reuters, uh, an exclusive report by them saying that the U.S. will not lift travel restrictions, citing this Delta variant, saying it is too early. Does this make sense from your perspective based on the science?
5: It's always hard to know when to impose restrictions on the mobility of people or the activities of people. Certainly, the Delta variant is more transmissible, but we do know that the vaccines are highly effective at preventing severe disease from the Delta variant. You know, over the past several weeks, over 99% of the deaths in the United States from COVID-19 have been in unvaccinated people. So while there is still a risk of infection in people who are vaccinated, the disease is typically much less. Now, also, we know that masking and observing social distancing are effective measures as well. I think the decision on when to impose a travel restriction is one of the most Difficult decisions our government leaders can make. I think the more we can do to keep track of the pandemic, where it's spreading, where it's receding, will help to inform those decisions.
2: A very diplomatic answer, Dr. Minor. There is a question also going forward of what we ought to be tracking in order to understand that we can open up our borders, we can open up some of these restrictions in full, in a comprehensive and uh, frankly united way. Is it fair? Is there a threshold of hospitalizations or death rates? rates that we can look to to signal that perhaps we have the all clear and can go back to life as normal?
5: I think you pointed out the critical uh, point to monitor, and that is hospitalizations. We know that what happened early in the pandemic, the tragedy in New York in April and May of, of last year That was related to the healthcare delivery systems becoming overwhelmed, not enough hospital beds, not enough ventilators, in some cases, not enough oxygen. We can't allow that to happen again. We're going to continue to see mild to moderate illness for weeks, months ahead because this pandemic, the virus continues to mutate. They're more transmissible forms that emerge. So it's going to be a long, we're going to be living with COVID for a long time, but we have to make sure that we don't overwhelm healthcare delivery systems.
0: When I look at this, I look, Dr. Miner, at a nation, as Tocqueville talked about, which is anti intellectual, anti science. And I know every other nation has the same challenges as well. Stanford is one of our resources of science, and I mean that in a philosophy sense. How do we shift this philosophy in America?
5: Well, I think there's a big responsibility for those of us who are in science and medicine to be better communicators than we have been in the past. When we don't know something, we need to say that we don't know it. We also need to help people understand what the process of gaining evidence is You know, no one, I think, two years, well, very few people two years ago would have predicted that something like COVID-19 would happen in our time, and it did. And we're still learning about rates of transmission, how the virus changes over time, and what can be done to prevent its spread. We do know, however, that the vaccines that have been developed and given FDA emergency use authorization in the United States are among the most safe and effective vaccines ever to be deployed.
0: We have to leave it there. Dr. Miner, thank you so much. Lloyd Miner with an update, an important update from Stanford University.
3: Let's get to Michael Kushmer, shall we? Morgan Stanley CIO of Global Fixed Income. Michael, part of the beauty of these conversations we have on this program sometimes is to get the Morgan Stanley view and compare and contrast that with another outfit. So let's talk about Goldman. Here's the quote. In the near term, a complete service sector recovery will likely require fully overcoming virus fears and returning to office work patterns. Both now appear likely to take longer than we anticipated. Goldman go on to deliver a one percentage point downgrade to GDP growth forecast for Q3 and Q4. What's the Morgan Stanley view at the moment?
6: Well, our our view in in investment management is that a slowdown of some degree is not necessarily a terrible thing for the economy as a whole, and that we were growing very, very fast, you know, at almost double-digit pace in the middle of this year. And obviously, we can't sustain that. And there's large inflationary pressures, which are making it difficult to discern the underlying trends in inflation in terms of how much is temporary, how much is, is permanent or inflationary, raising inflation expectations. So modest down, down, downgrades in growth, a little bit longer time frame in terms of getting back to normal because of the rise of the Delta variant and more uncertainty as to how people are going to behave with this greater uncertainty, the unwillingness to increase vaccinations in um, meaningfully in the in the near term, all Presage that, that, that what was what seen in terms of a downgrade in, in growth expectations in the bond market with yields falling significantly from where they were at the end of Q1.
0: Michael Kushman, this morning, just to get mathy, John insisted I do some math just to shut me up. And, and, and Michael, I did a 20 year regression of the five year real yield. I'm sorry, we have been in a trend of inflation adjusting ever, ever, ever lower. How do we
6: break that trend? Uh, That's absolutely true. It's been a combination of of design policy to bring inflation down over the last 20, 30, 40 years. I remember Alan Alan Blinder, when he was vice chairman of the Fed, talked about opportunistic disinflation as a way to bring down inflation in the 1990s. I think they've exceeded beyond their wildest um, dreams. But there's also been the underlying secular stagnation hypothesis of falling uh, secular dynamics of economies bringing down that rate as well i think what has to happen is that the fed has to has to commit to trying to raise inflation by keeping monetary policy easy when things are good. This is the opposite of opportunistic disinflation, we need opportunistic inflation, which means as the economies do better, we don't respond to it, just as the over responded in the previous periods. But most importantly is that a policy error occurred in the 2015 through 2018 period, inflation expectations collapsed. And we need to get at least back to where we were into the 2012, 2013 levels, which we're slowly getting back to. But the bet is will be a challenge with inflation as high as it is today to convince markets they will not revert back to any kind of behavior they um, had prior to um, uh, this um, pandemic.
2: Michael, faith in how much the Fed is willing to allow this economy to run hot. Another way of looking at this is, can real yields go more negative? They're already at all-time lows uh, this morning as people look at inflation picking up, supply chain issues not abating, labor shortages not abating, and a Fed continuing to be dovish and pointing to the Delta variant. Is this a trend that has more steam? Could we see 2% negative real yields?
6: I think it can if, if they remain committed they will not change a monetary policy you think about the mathematics of, of a 10-year bond yield it's an accumulation of, of, of one year yields one year this year one year next year one year ever <clears throat> going forward so the longer they procrastinate or not raise interest rates the more e- the more downward pressure there is on long-term rates today you know we estimate that if the fed 1.65 um, percent 10-year rate would be fair value if the fed res- re- did what they said they were going to, you know, raise rates to the end of 2023. If, in fact, they procrastinate further, where yields are today are not unreasonable, um, considering if they procrastinate to 2024 to to raising interest rates. So the more they push out with forward guidance, you know, when they're going to and how fast they're going to raise rates, the more yields can stay low. If inflation is still high, real yields can continue to remain very low. Can they move a lot lower? I'm not sure about that because I think inflation is going to peak in the next couple of quarters.
3: Michael Kushmer of Morgan Stanley. is going to catch up, sir. As always, the CIO of Global Fixed Income.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.